There's a fittingness to praying the Stations of the Cross today, and in praying especially the Stava Mater. Back in the day, Friday of Passiontide, the Friday before Palm Sunday, was a day that was dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows, and so we did well to pray the Stations. Since today is the last time we will pray the Stations together in Lent, I hope you pray it individually throughout the next week, figured I would end it by talking about the virtue par excellence of God and of his passion and of his carrying of the cross, which is the theological virtue of love, or as it's commonly called, the virtue of charity. The theological virtue of love is defined as to will the good of the other, to will the good of the other. And so you should notice first that there is an element of the will. All the virtues are perfections of the intellect and the will. And so love, in the theological sense, in the virtue sense, is an act of the will. And that means it's not a feeling. That means you don't have to feel great to love somebody. I will tell you a secret. I don't always feel the greatest to hear confessions or to celebrate Mass or to deal with the various things I have to deal with. All of that is irrelevant when it comes to love. Love is an act of the will. It is willing the good of the other. And notice that it's the good. You have to will the good of the other for you to love them. And that's important because there is this false notion in the world that when we love somebody, we kind of just leave them alone and we let them do whatever they are going to do and we avoid conflict. That is not, in fact, loving somebody. If somebody is in sin and someone is committing sin, that is not good for them. That is not good for their nature. And so you don't love them by sort of just leaving them out there. It's like if you are walking down the street and somebody is talking to you and they are going to run into a light post, you should not be polite and let them run into the light post. You should will their good. You should interrupt them. You should stop them. That's willing the good of somebody. So we see that we love because God first loved us, as 1 John 4.19 says. We love because he first loved us. And so we have to reflect upon the love of God. We have to reflect upon how the saints have responded to it. And then we have to ask ourselves, what should our response be? So we see the importance of love. In Deuteronomy 6.5, the very first commandment is, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And Paul in Corinthians, he says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So we must love. And so first, what is the love of God for us? Number two there, I should have mentioned maybe the most important thing about the love of God, and that it is active and it is effective. Spiritual writers will talk about that a lot. So it is active and it affected, effective. And what does that mean? God's love for us is not merely an emotional delight. And so if you think back to creation, you see God delighting in creation. But notice that before he pronounces something good, If God loves something, he makes it good. That's why it's active. That's why it's effective. So God loved us even before he created us. He loved us as an idea in his mind. Then he makes us good 
and then he pronounces us good. So God does not simply cover over things. If God wants something to be good because he loves it, he makes it good, and then he delights in it. So it is loving, it is active, it is effective. The two ways that we see, especially in the liturgical calendar, the love of God for us, ways in which he made us good and sort of gave us grace to elevate us in his good is the incarnation and the crucifixion. So you see there the quote from Philippians. Paul says, who though he was, this is Jesus, in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you think about it, this is not what should have happened. God created man. He offered to them eternal life. He offered to them a covenant. Mankind rejected that, disobeyed him, and was cast out of paradise. And then God... Instead of striking man down, he reaches down to grasp them. Remember, the love of God is active and effective. God was like the mother reaching down to their child and lifting them up. Jesus Christ emptied himself of his divinity. He took on the appearance of man and came and dwelt among us. This shows us the love of God for us. God the Father in the Old Testament constantly told Israel that he loved them. He constantly told Israel that he cared for them. He constantly asked Israel to trust themselves to them, and they never did. So in the fullness of time, God said, enough is enough. I will no longer tell you that I love you. I will show you. And so he comes in the flesh. The second great act of love for, for us from God is, of course, the crucifixion. Paul calls this the foolishness of God. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. In the garden, God told Eve, whatever day you eat of the fruit, you will die. And that was true. She ate of the fruits and Adam ate of the fruit and they died. But the thing God did not tell her, which he could have because it was true, was that on whatever day she ate of the fruit, he also would die. Such was his love for his creatures that he himself came and died for them. He himself handed himself over. He handed himself over to be scourged, to be crowned with thorns, to be spit upon. The one upon whom the the angels gaze in the kingdom of heaven was spit upon by men. Then he carried his cross and fell not once, not twice, but three times. And then at the end, he was stripped of his clothing. He had nails driven into his hands and to his feet. And he suffered the death of Roman crucifixion, a death of ultimate suffocation. And even then, such was his love for man that that was insufficient for him. He allowed his heart to be pierced with a lance. He gave his heart entirely to you so that you would give your heart entirely to him. If God had stopped there, the wonders of his love would have been manifest. But even all of that was insufficient. So Christ, wanting to dwell always and everywhere with his people, after dying for them, dwells among us in the Eucharist. The one upon whom the angels gaze, 
dwells among us under the appearance of bread and wine. And God dwells among us entirely passive. He knew when he instituted the Eucharist all the desecrations that would occur to the Eucharist. He knew all the priests who would be heretics and sinners and who would handle the Eucharist unworthily. But such was his love for mankind that he was willing to endure all of that, to dwell among us, and ultimately to be received in most holy communion by you. Because it is not sufficient for God to dwell near us in the tabernacle. He wants to dwell in your heart and in your soul through holy communion. So that is the love of God for us. What then, of course, is the response of the saints? It was not enough for the saints to simply grasp that Jesus is Lord. As he himself says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so you see the saints trying to conform their minds and their hearts and their wills entirely to Christ. They give completely of themselves. So you see, like St. Alphonsus, who had this illustrious law career, and he gives it all away so that he may live entirely for Christ as his priest. You see St. Anthony of Padua, who had a comfortable and noble Portuguese life, and he gave it all away because he desired to give himself entirely for Christ. You have Francis Xavier, who was so inflamed with the love of God, he abandoned Europe, went to the East to preach the gospel to those who would eventually kill him. You have Isaac Jobes, who went to the Iroquois to pronounce the gospel to them. He was tortured. He had two of his fingers cut off. And then he went back to his bishop, because at the time, if you didn't have these two fingers, you could not celebrate Mass. But so great was the love of Isaac Jobes for Christ that he went to his bishop. He asked him permission to celebrate Mass without his fingers. And then he went back to the Iroquois, where they tortured and they killed him. So great was his love for Christ and for others. So that is the response of the saints. And what then should our response be? When our Lord appeared to St. Margaret Mary, when he was instituting devotion to the Sacred Heart, he told her something interesting here in A at the bottom. It says, he says to her, Behold that heart which has so loved men that it spared nothing, even exhausting itself and consuming itself to attest its love to them. And yet, from the greatest part of them, I receive only ingratitude, as shown by contempt, irreverence, sacrileges, and coldness that they have for me and my sacrament of love. But what gives me more pain is that it is a question of souls consecrated to me. I receive only ingratitude, as shown by contempt, irreverence, sacrilege, and coldness. Those are the things we must avoid. We must avoid contempt by spurning the love of God, by ignoring it, by falling in love with worldly things. We must spurn irreverence by making sure we adore our Lord. You should take a holy hour. I don't know how many times I can tell you, take more holy hours. We should avoid sacrilege, right? Receiving the Eucharist unworthily, receiving the sacraments unworthily, treating sacred things without respect, treating especially our Lord in the Eucharist without respect. 
And we should avoid coldness. We should let the love of God penetrate our hearts and inflame them so that we may live a life worthy of him. And notice he says that what gives me more pain is that it is a question of souls consecrated to me. He's talking specifically of people of my ilk, priests and religious. But in a way, you've all been consecrated to him through baptism. So rather than contempt, irreverence, sacrilege, and coldness, give him what he desires, which is simply your love. Conform your will and your intellects to him. The ultimate measure of charity is seen there at the very bottom. Under B, Father Reginald Garagou Lagrange, my old spiritual master, he says that the quality of our charity, the quality of our love, is not measured by the sweetness of a sensible devotion. Notice he realizes love is not a feeling, it's an act of the will. And then he says, the infallible signs of progress in charity are the hatred of sin, which we should hate above all things, and the configuration to Christ by means of progress in all the virtues and gifts of the Holy Spirit. If we do not wish to die to sin, if we do not wish to mortify ourselves, we do not love the Lord and we live the religious life in vain. Hatred of sin and configuration to Christ by means of the virtue and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that is ultimately the end goal of the spiritual life, that is ultimately the way in which we should measure how much we love our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank <laughs> you.